Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, episode one. 99199 Friday the 23rd of July 2021 one episode before our 200th mark so it means one week for our listeners or subscribers to send us an email in order to be in the draw for our swag of fantastic prizes provided by ourselves and also our great sponsors specialized animal nutrition microchips australia and chemical essentials so what is, what, what the good is news that? is, mate, you can hear the music. I mean, you can hear the intro music this week, which is fantastic. So they fi- fix that. Can you hear me, Brendan? I can hear you, Mark. Oh, great. I can hear you. My, um, my little, uh, um, you know, the sound recording, the deviation wasn't moving very far. And I'm going, oh, no, you can't hear me. Tell me which, what is the final date that we're accepting emails, well, email we'll- entries? <sighs> Let's, we will accept, I'm going to make this up as I go, we will accept <laughs> the entries until we publish our next podcast, which will be the 30th of July. So we will accept the entries until, well, probably 29th of July, Thursday <laughs> the 29th. How does that sound? Um, and we will be published on the 30th. So the entry process is email vetgurus at gmail.com that's it say hello where you're from what you do whether you like the podcast or not and that's it you've entered and we will we will send the package it might come in separate packages because it's so much um to anywhere on planet earth so it doesn't matter what country you are in we will send it out to you so get going get typing Send us an email, and we love hearing from our listeners, don't we, Mark? And I think you wanted to – it's a good segue into a, an email we received from one of our listeners, Vicky. It's, I always feel um, that we should rate our segues, and this one would be right up there, you know, probably an 8.6 <laughs> out of 10. Um, the Yes, we have – uh, um, as and this is counted as an entry into our competition. Uh, Vicky, Absolutely. Vicky Brownlee from Western Australia has written to us. Uh, just to um, say good day and asked a couple of questions, Brendan. One of those questions, um, uh, talking about mental health, is something that we plan on having a talk about in one of the future podcasts. So we'll answer that more expansively later on. Um, but um, the, for the other question uh, Vicky asks was um, why uh, the vaccination of myxomatosis in rabbits isn't allowed in Australia. Um, and it's it's a very common issue for us to deal with uh, because it's so heartbreaking to deal with those myxomatosis cases. We regularly have to talk to clients about um, the fact that, uh, you know, they'll get online, they'll look overseas and see that there is a vaccination uh, program that's available in various countries in the world, but it's not available in Australia. And, of course, the very next question our clients ask us is, when will that happen? What is going to happen and why isn't it here? And, Brendan, you and I have talked about this a number of times because there's a little bit of... Um, uh, uh, confusion. I think the 
my understanding is that the general uh, principle is that uh, the agriculture industry, I th- actually think there was an ABEAR report which suggested that um, that uh, the myxoma virus in that the number of rabbits that it uh, that it kills is is worth the value of $1.6 billion to Australian agriculture. That is, uh, agriculture would would lose $1.6 billion in damage, in loss of growth, in uh, uh, poorer pastures if that proportion of rabbits that die from myxomatosis were, were to survive. Um, and the fear that the modified live vaccine could somehow escape um, and remain alive and vaccinate wild rabbits um, uh, is enough to, well, scare the authorities, I think, permanently into never allowing that vaccination into the country. I think it's a bit paradoxic because I think the scientific evidence of the shrop fibroma-based vaccine um, actually escaping and, and becoming a wild variant is you know, it's very, very unlikely, but even that huge uh, unlikelihood um, is an unlikelihood the agricultural industry is not prepared to take. Yes. So I think the chances are very slim, aren't they, Mark, unfortunately, that we will um, get the myxomatosis vaccine for pet rabbits in Australia, despite the fact that there is ongoing lobbying of various politicians and, and um, by various groups, isn't there, and petitions. I think there's always an ongoing petition um, about trying to argue those exact points that you've mentioned there. But um, unfortunately, I don't think we're any closer um, to it happening, which is, yeah, it's 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 sad, isn't it, is, is what you said at the start, when you, when you have a client that has a a rabbit or you, or you have an outbreak of myxomatosis in an area and, and you end up euthanizing these rabbits that are dying, pet rabbits that are dying this pretty horrible death um, and you're trying to explain the whole process to the client. So, yes. So, unfortunately, Vicky, we don't have a um, an answer to that and we don't have a vaccine either <laughs> um, that we can produce um, for our little pet rabbits. So um, who knows, Mark, um, the crazy world we live in, you never know what's happening um, with with um, with lots of things. And, and speaking of um, rabbits, Mark, I think you've been on a little bit of a field tri- trip and you were actually quite interested um, to see how many pet rabbits that you have seen in a particular state of Australia that... Oh, no, I've given you the bum steer, Brendan. We have, we have, Kate and I have escaped the... The um, the gloominess of New South Wales, gloomy both weather-wise and in prospect of dealing with the coronavirus, and we've headed north to Queensland and popped over the border and uh, had a uh, um, you know a few weeks up here now. Um, but uh, wild rabbits, um, we've been spending ah. most of our time on on uh, farms, and and given the absolute ban, there's a rabbit-proof fence that runs. Uh, you know, along part of the New South Wales-Queensland border. Um, there's also, um, you know, an absolute prohibition on the animals as pets up here with a significant 20000 Australian dollar fine for owning a long-haired guinea pig, um, a long-eared guinea pig. Um, and um, 
And yeah, but they, they, it doesn't seem to be making any difference to the numbers that are in the wild, to my um, uh, to my eye, as we drive around and, and camp on the farms we've been camping on. There's quite a rap, few rabbits around, um, so I don't know. I don't know how effective the rabbit proof fence is, Brendan. And a few Akubra hats, I expect, <laughs> as well. And for those, of you who, for those of you from overseas who, um, that's the iconic Australian outback cowboy type hat, I suppose, um, is what you'd view it if you're looking from overseas. Um, and it's made, traditionally it's made from felt, from, from rabbit felt, isn't it? Is it still made from rabbit, rabbit felt? Yes, it is. Yep. Felted well, the, rabbit hair. Oh, there you go. Um, well, I haven't got a segue to my one and only news story, Mark, but it, I, I found this a fascinating one, and I think the title of the of the article was um, sort of summarises it because it has a big question mark on it, Mark. Do trees talk to each other? And it's based on a bit of a publishing sensation, Mark, a book called The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel and how they communicate, which has sold more than 800,000 copies in Germany, which is where the author is from. Um, but it's also been on a bestseller list in many countries. And his basic premise is that there's um, the trees aren't individuals, Mark, um, and some are calling it the wood wide web, Mark the wood wide web that trees of the same species are communal and they will often form intricate sort of connections with each other's and they've evolved into cooperative interdependent relationships and they communicate especially under the ground mark with their mycorrhizal networks is what they call in it so the tips of the roots join together with microscopic fungal filaments to form the basic links of the network and they exchange information and what they think is happening or he thinks is happening that um, they transfer energy across to the younger saplings so the older trees might share things with um, with a younger um, tree that's um, struggling to grow a little bit and, and vice versa Mark um, so that's his sort of core I was going to say belief, but thoughts as far as, far as it. Um, and there is certainly some evidence that that, um, that occurs. And um, there's some other studies, Mark, including one from Leipzig University um, that showed that trees know the taste of deer saliva. Did you know this, Mark? When a deer is biting a branch, the tree brings defending chemicals to make the leaves taste bad. Um They'd have to be pretty quick, wouldn't they, <laughs> to do that? But it is controversial because um, further down in this article, um, there's several um, other sort of um, scientific experts that um, poo-poo the idea, Mark, and that they say that it's anthropomorphising um, our thoughts about trees and, and their behaviours, um, um, although we're only just beginning to learn the language of trees um, we don't know what they're saying with the pheromones says one of the authors um, and another author um, which was very blunt um, if I try and find it here uh, um, it was quite funny I'm just scrolling down scrolling down um, um, the mother tree protecting its little ones it's so anthropomorphized that it's really not health, help, helpful um, 
Trees do not have will or intention. They solve problems, but it's all under hormonal control. And it has evolved through natural selection. But I thought it was quite fascinating. I may even um, think about having a bit of a browse through this book, Mark. Have you heard of this book? I have heard of it. And I think, um, well, between the two of us, we might have to um, have a podcast purchase and, uh, yeah, review it. Um, I do think this is one of those situations where, because I love science communication and I I rather... um, grandiosely think that you and I contribute a little bit to that stuff by the the discussions we have here. And I'm fascinated between good and not so good science communication. And I think this is one of those situations where an enthusiastic uh, science communicator trying to excite a broader population about um, a process has employed anthropomorphic terminology to provide a vehicle for explanation. But I just get a little bit scared that in trying to glorify by proximity to things that we understand the complex processes of trees, you actually belittle the fact that it's not close. It's something equally complex and magical, but completely different to, you know, the in that article they talk about how... Um, uh, the mycorrhizal connections with old dying trees help to support them. And that reminds the author of uh, elephants, you know, uh, altruistically supporting elderly elephants. And I understand the, the use of analogy to excite people, but it's just amazing on its own. It doesn't need any... Yes. Um, uh, um, it doesn't need the amazingness of humans or elephants to make it amazing. It's amazing all its own. Yes, it certainly is. Um, and it makes you sort of feel good, doesn't it, if something like that happened? It does to me anyway, if that sort of <laughs> process occurs. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I've, always, I've always liked the Ents in um, Lord of the Rings, Mark. I don't know whether you <laughs> like them, but um, I just found them quite majestic. Um, creatures so there you go that's my one and only news article mark what do you have well i've got um a a report um on bearded dragons um it comes from uh it's a um, plos uh supplied by plos from april this year i think um and it talks about uh one of our favourite um, animals for multiple reasons, the central bearded dragon, Pagona viticeps, um, and um, a number of researchers at Canberra, namely Sarah Whiteley and Arthur Georges, um, they, um, in in genetics, in the journal Genetics, they published an, an evidence of uh, both genetic sex determination and temperature sex determination in uh, beard, central bearded dragons. I was fascinated by this, Brendan. And in fact, people have asked me about because it happens in um, turtles, uh, temperature dependent sex determination occurs in some other reptile species, turtles, sea turtles, and crocodilians leap to mind immediately. I've had people ask me about this before, and I've out and out said that it doesn't happen in, in other species because I wasn't aware that. It did, and I've had to. I'll have to say sorry to those people because um, uh, they now have evidence 
um, that uh, hot temperatures can override the genetic sex chromosomes and cause uh, genetic males to develop as females. Um, I'm, I'm really, I mean, it's just such new information and, um, and the uh, um, genetic basis for the, the hormonal override that's based on temperature, um, uh, Sarah and Arthur are working on those processes at the moment, the actual um, uh, location in metabolism where this happens. And it's going to like open up a whole new branch of science. It's most fascinating and exciting biology. Um, and given uh, our, um, Dr. Whiteley says that the most exciting component of this work is the discovery that mechanisms in that that the mechanism involves ubiquitous and highly conserved cellular processes and and signaling pathways and epigenetic processes of chromatin modification. This new knowledge is bringing us closer to understanding how temperature determines sex, so it is a very exciting time to be in biology. And I tend to agree with that. I think that um, uh, delineating this process and particularly identifying embedded dragons, um, it will have widespread um, repercussions in reproductive biology and many other species, Brendan. Yes, it was a fascinating read, this one, and we will link to it at our website, vetgurus.com. Um, yeah. It'd be nice to be. I feel a bit jealous, Mark, of of, of um, these researchers um, that are discovering and investigating these types of things. It would be fun, wouldn't it? Uh, hey, I've got a great question for you. Uh, given that, given that um, researchers, these researchers have now discovered that uh, changes in incubation temperature can have an effect on and override the genetically coded sex of an individual. Do you think that it's possible that anomalies in temperature might have effects on other developmental processes um, and that incubation, captive incubation as a consequence, given its variability compared to wild incubation, might be a contributing factor to problems with the health of these animals as they grow up? Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it's another thing we need to mull over and talk to our clients about when they're when they're undertaking that with their with their pets. And um, yeah, it's another it's another piece of the jigsaw, isn't it, Mark? It's another I think it entirely of, is. Of the jigsaw. Um, okay, so let's jump into our news story. Uh, not our news story, our main. Speaking of reptiles and beta dragons, Mark, um, we are going to talk about hepatic lipidosis in reptiles, beta dragons specifically, and it's a topic that we sort of had on the list of main topics to cover, but we've um, left it till episode 199 to cover it. Um, <laughs> I don't know why, but um, it's sort of been sat there in the background saying, oh, gee, that would be great to cover that next week. And next week comes and goes, and here we are at episode 199. So, Mark, do you see hepatic lipidosis in beta dragons, and is it common? Yes, and yes. We see it 
quite often. And um, I know that um, one of the you asking you are asking why now for a topic that we've been thinking about for a while. And I know part of the reason is um, the uh, cases that make it proximate, that raise it in our mind. And um, you sent me some wonderful photos of one of your cases. And look, that that uh, celiotomy with the appearance that um, the the you've opened up the abdomen, you've had a look at the the liver, and it's yellow patterned, um, sort of uh, tessellated surface. Um, as each of the lobules deposits fat in 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 it, um, it's like classic, isn't it? Just makes you immediately think, oh, this is superimposed on this animal's other problems. It's uh, it's got a problem with its liver, and it looks like it's going to be a fatty one. Yes, and that's yeah. I must admit that's why I decided to push it up to this week because I did have a recent case. Um, with hepatic lipidosis um, so and it's a fascinating sort of syndrome isn't it because it can be a little bit of a challenge to diagnose it um, and there is sort of a definitive method to do that but let's jump back to the start with these Mark um, and what sort of clinical signs would you say that you would classically see or that would hint or that would put in the back of your mind that hey maybe this is a fatty liver syndrome beta dragon that I have in front of me? Well, there's probably a couple of things that uh, that make me um, alert to the possibility. The signs are often vague, as they are, you know, regularly with many hepatopathies. Um, they're often not the first thing that leaps out at you and you go, oh, obviously I've got a liver problem with this animal. Um, but they're vague signs that generally involve you know, alterations to, first of all, appetite. So the animals, animals that previously would have been good eaters on both their, their vegetable matter and, and their um, insects, the smaller proportion of their diet being insects, might give up on the, the, um, the plants and might only be stimulated by the movement of insects to have a go at food. Um, and then they might go off their food altogether um, and, uh, and, and have a period of inappropriate inappetence, um, not connected with their sort of annual cycle of brumation. And speaking of brumation, those other annual cycles, whether it be brumation or more importantly, reproductive activity, um, particularly in female bearded dragons, we will regularly see that, um, uh, those changes that, uh, that um, encourage them to circulate more uh, fat around the body, vitellogenesis, um, those processes will often uh, result in aberrant liver function. So a female lizard who, yes. is, uh, um, who is a little bit gone off of food inappropriately, um, certainly would, one of the things we'd be looking at would be whether that lizard has a degree of hepatic lipidosis. Yes, me also, Mark, and I just worry about this as a potential syndrome or problem in any any fat bit of dragon, Mark. <laughs> so, and especially on inappropriate diet, as you sort of hinted at there. So, um, do you think how Brendan, do we... look, just as a quick aside, while yes. you're talking about fat bearded dragons, I was going to say um, it, that's probably one of the things that I, I, when I look at um, some of the bearded dragons on the web from other countries, um, 
they generally are maintained much fatter than the bearded dragons I see from my clients and much, much fatter than the bearded dragons I see in the wild. Um, so I wonder, this is definitely, you know, you've hit the nail on the head as usual that, um, that if they're morbidly obese, this is much, much more likely to be on the table as a, as a potential differential, but, um, but definitely, uh, around the world, I don't think people realize how, um, lean and muscular these lizards are in the wild. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and for vets who aren't seeing many of these bearded dragons, who see occasional bearded dragon, um, the uh, one tip is always when you're doing a clinical exam on a bearded dragon, apart from obviously weigh in the animal at some stage, preferably early early on in the consultation. Um, palpating for those pelvic fat pads that we, we call, Mark, um, and sometimes those fat pads are enormous, aren't they? Mm. And it's a bit of an acquired technique, but once you get the technique down, it's fairly simple to do and non-invasive and, and non-painful for the animal um, to gently palpate those, I call them sort of banana shaped structures um, in the salomic cavity on both sides there sitting along they sort of then run along sort of the lateral towards the lateral body wall don't they Um, and if I have a bit of dragon that is obviously um, quite weighty um, for its age and also we have very large pelvic fat pads and so it's a triad here Mark um, it's on a pretty average diet that's um, probably um, inappropriate with with amounts of fat and and um, calories um, kilojoules then um, I'm suspicious that maybe this is a an hepatic lipidosis case waiting to happen or has already happened because I think a fair number of these just brew along for a fair period of time don't they um, and then then they may fall in a bit of a heap with secondary changes which we might sort of touch on shortly um, so it can be weeks to months to I think even even a year or two with some of these that that it has a, a hepatic lipidosis developing that um, the animal may not show any obvious outward signs of it mark and I agree with you I think this is one of those um, uh, chronic processes which um, you know reach certain threshold points, and then then things become more clinically relevant. But the disease has been um, has been building and uh, and not reached those uh, levels where it where it affects appetite or other metabolic processes um, until it reaches that threshold. But there are changes in the liver that uh, that you know have probably built up for a year or two before they they crash and burn. Yes, yes. So, what do we do, Mark? What's our workup? What's our what's our um, diagnostic steps with this patient um, if we have a suspected fatty liver syndrome, bearded dragon in your clinic, Mark? What do you do? Well, I generally start with you know our 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 usual array of um, diagnostic tools. Um, probably the one that I lean to the most is. Um, to get some blood work done because not because it's very useful in in diagnosing hepatic lipidosis um, it will sometimes give us uh, some information that there's pathology going on with the liver but uh, in a large number of these cases um, as we said before the chronic onset 
um, might mean that you don't have hugely significant blood results. But um, but that would be the first thing we do. Um, and um, sometimes we are looking at uh, maybe ultrasound images to make an assessment of the changes in the shape and size of the liver and also to review those palpation findings of the caudal abdominal fat pads. Um, but, um, geez, I often find, I've got to tell you, Brendan, we do collect our um, database, our, um, our medical database, and we get to this point and we are still often saying, oh, I think this is hepatic lipidosis, but we can't be sure. Are you in the same situation? I right. am, especially <laughs> when I unmute myself. Um, yeah, I think the difficulty with that, yeah, we certainly go with the cl the, the obvious there, the clinical examination, um, sometimes um, radiographs as well, but certainly bloods. And the, I think the difficulty with the bloods is that the liver enzymes in particular may be um, relatively normal. I think the one that potentially is abnormal more often with hepatic lipidosis in these beta dragons is the bile acids, I think. Yeah. Um, but everything else, I think, is relatively um, normal in some of these cases. Sure, some of them, they have increased them. So it doesn't necessarily hone you into the thought that it is confirmed with a, um, just, just with that blood work there. So we do need to start digging a little bit deeper. But once we have those those situations where we've looked at that history and, and um, that, that's pointing towards it. Um, we examine the animal and it's pointing towards a, a, an hepatic lipidosis case. It's a bearded dragon, so that points towards it as well. Um, and um, we do those other diagnostic steps, then, then it maybe then jump into that gold standard mark that will tell us yes or no whether it is a, an hepatic lipidosis case, and that is what, Mark? Well, it's a biopsy, Brendan. Um, you need to get a sample of the liver. And, and I tell, um, it's often because it involves a celiotomy um, and uh, obviously there's always the potential risk of, of hemorrhage with any liver disease, um, I find that there's a little bit of reticence to go ahead with um, major interventions sometimes with uh, the veterinarians I work with. But I've got to say that the lizards that uh, that we've gone ahead with made a small incision to access the liver and gotten a, a biopsy. Um, it's been not a hugely difficult procedure and it's given us an opportunity to assess other structures in the abdomen and it's allowed us to make that definitive diagnosis and move forward confidently. So I think um, getting a biopsy, good thing to do. And I think another method that's sometimes used, and I don't know whether I've done it myself, is, is the method that was described for biopsying livers of snake, I think, Mark, which was sort of the otoscope assisted one do you remember that there was a paper written several many years ago about that where you'd make a little nick incision and you'd sterilize your or cold sterilize your um, otoscope cone and pop your little otoscope in there and use that as a little funnel to to um, obtain your biopsy there and, and definitely um, many practices have um, you know endoscopic the yes. endoscopy equipment used to uh, have a look inside birds can also be used to insufflate the abdomen and and uh, and um, get good clear visualization and get a biopsy as well so celiotomy is not the only one of course but um, uh, 
but that tends to be the the um, most common way we go. Um, and I feel more confident of the you know the the, the samples first of all, but also just uh, post op um, hemorrhage. I, I know many people who use endoscopy routinely are perfectly happy that they're not going to cause a problem, but I just freak out with those little holes that I lose track of what's going on inside. <laughs> yes. Yes. Speaks and more to my endoscopic lack of endoscopic skills rather than the technique <laughs> itself. So what do we do next, Mark? So say we, we've, we have our biopsy and the histopath comes back and it says... Yes, it, this is a case of hepatic lipidosis. Um, we do a really because we're so happy we've got a diagnosis. But then, what's our, what's our management? How do we deal with it? What do we what do we advise the client? What's your approach to these, Mark? Well, I think the first thing um, is, as is the case with many situations with reptiles, is to emphasise to the client this is not a condition we're going to fix quickly. Um, this is going to take some time. Like most things that happen with reptiles, they happen slowly. This has gotten to this point slowly, as we said before, maybe a couple of years, it's going to take some time to get it right. And so um, you need to prepare the client for the effort and time that's going to be involved. Yep, exactly. And I think it's a slow process, isn't it? I mean, the good news is um, if if we've got, and it's a bit of a catch-22, if we've <laughs> um, seen this um, this bit of dragon that um, hasn't crashed, it hasn't got to that sort of final point where it falls in a heap, um, then it's not necessarily a death sentence for these ones we've, once we've diagnosed it, even with moderate to severe hepatic lipidosis. Um, but it's, it's time management, I think, um, and educating the client that it's the long haul. And I suppose my analogy would be similar to some of the metabolic bone disease type cases we see in the reptiles, that you need to have a client that's committed to doing the alterations to diet, et cetera, and monitoring their, their animal long term and um, following up with that monitoring um, and and diagnostics and um, then there's a reasonably good chance that we'll get there with that particular animal and obviously treating any secondary um, issues that we have with this animal if, if it has got to that stage where it develops secondary problems like infectious hepatitis etc um, with them um, what's your sort of general talk to the clients when you are presented with one of these Mark with the the um, as yeah. far as how, um, what, do you, what do you say in that initial well, post-result consultation with the client? Well, once I've con consulted with them, convinced them that it's uh, worth doing but it's going to take some time, I, I celebrate with them a little bit because um, the good thing is that, by and large, this is not going to take a whole lot of medication or serious surgery or um, a huge investment in another way. It's all about managing the lizard's nutrition, both the um, you know the energy levels and the total volume of food, um, and and it really um, is is one of the I suppose it's less difficult treatments the main difficulty is how long it has to go on for um, but the good thing is that uh, if people are prepared to go down that path and make those 
uh, dietary changes, decreasing the total volume, avoiding the fattier foods, um, encouraging the uh, more fibrous uh, plant material um, as a significant part of the intake, um, then these lizards can go really, really well. And um, we always want those cases that have a high likelihood of a positive outcome. So more specifically, what are some of the food items that you will then say to the client, don't feed this or stop feeding this um, with that hepatic lipidosis case? Um, well, we regularly definitely cut down on, you know, one of the common feeds that um, that many of our clients will use will be uh, the, the uh, superworms or mealworms. Um, yes. Those um, are, you know, little bags of chitin filled with uh, uh, fatty um, insect contents. Um, they're, they're not good. So we we literally cut those out of the diet altogether. The way that we cut them out, though, is important, Brendan, because I think a lot of bearded dragons that have sudden changes to their diet um, are much harder to handle. And so over a period of uh, usually we talk to people between four and six weeks, um, we might cut down. that We would have some clients who are giving their bearded dragon, say, six superworms a day yes um, and those clients we would uh, put them on some form of program where we cut down um, the the total number and the the frequency so they might um, drop it to four every second day in the first week they might drop it to um, uh, um, three every third day over the period of um, four weeks, we'd cut it down so that those uh, those items were no longer um, included in the diet. And similarly, we'd uh, we have some clients who prefer to feed large volumes. You know, they might even feed pinky mice to their bearded dragons, um, and those foodstuffs very high in fat and uh, and very tasty. But we would cut those out of the the diet pretty promptly. Um, so those things gone. Crickets, we probably um, crickets are um, potentially are not as fatty as um, as the mealworms and superworms, um, but we're still they're very nutrient dense, um, and, and we start to try and taper those uh, items in the diet down as well. Yes, well, very similar. Not unsurprising to what I'd be saying to the clients. Um, now, we need to get on to the last little, well, two, two, two things, Mark. Um, the prevention, which we've sort of, sort of covered um, with, with um, the fact that um, they're feeding them the wrong things in the first place, but we'll um, summarise that shortly. But the controversial bit, Mark, or potentially controversial bit, what about supplements? What about some of these products that... Uh, promoted or um, have some um, some mention in the literature, Mark, um, that may or may not help with um, with the hepatic lipidosis. So specifically, I'm talking about products like the um, L-carnitine, um, adenosyl methionine, vitamin E, milk thistle extract, those types of things. What are your thoughts on those, Mark? Well, I... I've got to say, Brendan, that we've regularly used some or all of those in specific patients. Um, I think my, my uh, personal opinion is that um, that 
the dietary changes and the exercise, the husbandry changes, they are the heavy lifters in the recovery. They probably do 95% of the good. And I think that these supplements, they probably make a difference, um, but they're only carrying that 5 or 10% of the load. Um, for the clients that are keen to do every single thing they possibly can, um, I don't think it's a bad thing to do, to direct them to the supplements. Um, I, we've we probably the non-specific effects of uh, of um, silly marin milk thistle extract. I can't argue with it being added, and it's usually relatively inexpensive. Um, vitamin E, once again, non-specific. We've had less, you know, clear evidence that that's made a difference. Um, L-carnitine, if I remember correctly, that ends up being a relatively expensive treatment um, and there'll be some clients that go for it. Um, I don't know that it makes that huge difference that I'd be um, insisting that they add that to their treatment protocol. Yes, I agree. Um, I, I think, I suppose my bottom line with them is I don't think they cause any detrimental of detrimental effects. So um, the use of them, I don't think, is is contraindicated. But whether they help or not, I think the jury's still out with them. Um, there's certainly some thought that they do do help. Sort of what scavenge free radicals, as a thought, with some of them, like the the same um, drug, for instance, and um, of the, the the recent case that of. Um, Scene, which was one of those females of of um, on placing that one on the adenosyl methionine, um, yeah. but that's all on placing that one on and on concentrating on the um, the those long term dietary um, changes as well as the fact it was spayed Mark <laughs> to yeah. um, control the um, condition that we we're having with the follicular stasis in that case there. Um, so, but I've, I've certainly seen. Beauties that um, that have been placed on a whole range of these um, these products, um, and I suppose my only concern there is, you know, um, sometimes the clients might have a whole swag of um, medications that they're trying to get into this animal, and um, we might be stressing that animal out more than we ought to be um, with products that may or may not be helping that much with them so i think it's a little bit of a balance with some of these products that are, are not 100 percent proven to be effective in helping reverse those changes with the hepatocytes etc um do you have any sort of other comments regarding the supplements uh only that i'd echo that the uh sort of weighing out the stress of employing them um, you know, there are some lizards that are relatively easy to medicate, but we have a fair few of those uh, inland bearded dragons who really resent anything being applied to their mouth. And, and I do worry that, uh, that stressing them in that situation when they're metabolically fragile might not be the best way forward. Yes. So follow up for these, Mark, and prevention um, as we get closer to closing this 199th episode um when would you recommend to the client that they bring this patient back or get in touch with you again and, and following it up to see how things are going well usually we aim for something you know the, the obviously we don't expect changes within 
you know, seven to 10 days. Um, and so generally, as long as the lizard is um, stable or improving, we aim for three or four weeks for our first progress exam. Um, but at that stage, we're still not, you know, considering um, additional blood work or um, uh, a repeat endoscopy to obtain hepatic samples. Um, we're, we're just checking that things are going okay and that there's no serious additional complication. Um, but it might be then after, thereafter, after that uh, first month, might be once every 12 to 16 weeks that uh, we double check the weight, palpate the fat bodies, stick the ultrasound on to see the shape and size of the liver, um, do the non-invasive things. Um, and maybe when we get a year out, we'd be talking to them about um, repeating the biopsy and seeing where we are with the liver. Yes, I must admit, I, I, I can't recall repeating a biopsy on these ones. Um, so um, I tend to just, I do suggest it to them, but um, probably don't, I don't tell them we need to do it rather than perhaps we should be doing it um, down the track to see what's happening there. Um, and I concentrate on the, all the other aspects, like you mentioned, making sure that they're on track with the with the feeding and the diet and um, the husbandry and the, and the regular weighing and palpating those those pelvic fat pads, etc. Um, with them. And um, prevention-wise, I think it's trying to, it's all the usual, isn't it, Mark? It's, it's trying to get them in, get them in early when they're youngsters, these bearded dragons, and, and, and um, educate the clients on the correct and appropriate period of feeding their animals and um, not just over overfeeding them generally or, or feeding them too often, but also feeding the appropriate insects or not um, to them um, to help prevent things like the fatty liver syndrome with them and um, do you and, and related to this mark do you um, recommend as a routine um, preventative desexins for the female bearded dragons look we haven't before brendan um, and that's been probably much more of a um, uh, you know confidence in the procedure um, but as particularly more recently, um, as we've gotten much more confident in performing the procedure, we, we have um, suggested that before these animals are stressed, um, if we have a female bearded dragon, before they develop a problem, either an, you know, uh, prophylactic uh, desexing in bearded dragons not only prevents this, but a number of other um, reproductive potential reproductive disasters. Um, and, um, yeah, I think the best time to do that is when they're not sick. So, yeah, at the moment we are increasingly um, confident in recommending de uh, prophylactic desexing in these lizards. And with that, what's your procedure with those, Mart? I'd, I'd be interested. Is that just ovariectomy or you're removing the the oviduct as well? No, we're just taking out the ovaries, Brendan. We, uh, we generally... Uh, trying to make the procedure as um, innocuous as possible um, and uh, and the complication that comes from trying to tease out the oviduct um, affecting those uh, blood vessels and structures further down in the abdomen um, tends to complicate it a bit more so just the yes and and are you doing that from one or one one sort of paramedian incision or you're making an incision on either side and just hunting for that individual ovary on each side? 
Generally, it's a single paramedian incision, um, and then you know we're avoiding that uh, central uh, vein, the central abdominal, ventral abdominal vein in the centre. And, um, and but if we make an incision that's not too that's paramedian, but not too far off the centre, we can usually access both sets of um, of. Uh, uh, ovarian tissue from the one incision um, and that's often much easier when you know they're not reproductively active when they're reproductively active um, I find the bunches of follicles extend much more laterally and make it more difficult to access them from a single central incision a, a paramedian just off center um, and in those ones we might uh, have to contemplate a more extensive lengthwise incision or um, go to, uh, to two incisions, but most commonly just a single one. Yes. Excellent. Great tip. And um, I could visualize that very well, Mark, there. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that next um, prophylactic ovariectomy on a bearded dragon. And I think with that, um, we will close off and don't forget, um, put your entry in. You have one week or just under one week. Vetgurus at gmail.com, send an email, say hello, and you're in for the draw for our 200th episode next week.